I think we're also hitting maybe a little bit of a wall in NLP where maybe just using text alone is, is not enough. Even when you scale to these really, really huge sizes, you still have this little thing that's still missing. And it's probably something that you need to find in other modalities. All right, everyone, I am here with Thomas Wolf. Thomas is co-founder and chief science officer at Hugging Face. Thomas, welcome to the Twimble AI podcast. Hi, Sam. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I am looking forward to digging into the conversation with you. We'll be talking about a wide range of topics, including transformers, hugging face, of course, some of your initiatives and research and the big science project and more. And one thing I found super interesting was that you did a PhD in quantum physics and then went on to get a law degree in practice as a lawyer. How did all of that come about and how did you then end up in AI? Yeah, how do you make a coherent story out of that? <laughs> no, I guess w- when I was studying, actually, also ML was very strong and I was very small. I mean, I didn't didn't even know about this field. So in France, physics, theoretical physics was, was very interesting to me. And so I did, I did this PhD. I was actually in the U.S. at some time here. I hesitated between MIT and then Paris. And then in the end, Paris was more interesting for me, for the city, I would say. One of the problems, I would say, in physics is experiments are like super long, but we don't have any idea. When we train a model for four months, we're like, this is super long. But uh, a real experiment (laughs) in physics is like four years. You need to buy a cryos. You need to to install it. And it's... You have all these problems. We don't realize how, how fortunate we are in ML that we can reproduce our experiments very, very easily. Every, everything is quite easy to do. Mm-hmm. And so at the end of my PhD, I was contemplating going to academia, but that meant basically staying 10 years on the same same topic if you want to, to do something impactful. And that was just too long. And at the same time, just writing my PhD was actually a very pleasant experience. And so I thought I was looking for a job where I could write more. You don't hear that often, I don't think. Yeah, <laughs> people find that painful. <laughs> like education and talking about research, I found that super interesting. Mm-hmm. And so a friend was a lawyer and told me that if you want to write, you should be a lawyer. So I was like, okay, let's try. <laughs> and I went up to be an AP attorney for five years, a little bit more than five years. That was very enjoyable. I think I like this a lot. I had my pool of startups, mostly startups, but also some big groups that was helping like with all IP question writing, writing patterns and everything. Mm-hmm. And at the end, around 2014, 14 years, yeah, something that was the beginning actually of, of deep learning. I think, well, at least it was starting to work and like some startups were, were trying to, to use the computer vision models. And so I, were, I was writing the patterns. And I was like, yeah, this is actually a physics equation. You know, they're just rebranded. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, they don't call that free energy, but in the end, it's a little bit the same. It's uh, they're just uh, doing the same thing, and so I decided to dig a little bit in this. And so I remember like printing the the deep learning paper from Jan, the deep learning book. You know, just was not published yet, but there was like an alpha version on the web, mm-hmm. and reading that. And at the same time, I was supposed to move to the US, and so basically all my law degree were just not worth much anymore because I should have like taken a law school in the US. So I was like, okay, this is a bit annoying. I don't want to do a law school anymore. Yeah. And so Julien was uh, founding Hugging Face in Brooklyn at the time with Clément. Mm-hmm. And it was a game company. It was a chatbot company. And they were like, well, this LSTM stuff are kind of starting to work. Maybe we can do a, a bit of science on the side. And I was like, okay, I'm, I would be happy to do the science part at Hugging Face. 
And we had this very long dream that maybe at some point we could be, I don't know, like, like a deep mine, like a big research lab that seems so far away at the time. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that was the beginning of Hugging Face. In the end, I didn't move to the U.S. I stayed in the Netherlands and, and Julien was, was in France and Clément in, in the U.S. So we kind of started this remote company from the beginning, actually. Mm-hmm. And this is how we started five, five years ago. Wow. So for quite some time, we were mostly doing a chatbot yeah. and game. And at some point, we started to open source these few tools that we had built. That was the, the first one was... Um, Actually, some transfer learning called DeepMoji, which was before GPT, but that was, I think, the first time transfer learning kind of really, really worked well. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that DeepMoji was transformer-based. Mm. No, it was not. It was before the transformer paper. Oh, okay. Do you know the DeepMoji? It was kind of a funny one. They, they trained, it was the Meet Media Lab. They trained like a, a big LSTM on, on, I think, 4 trillion tweets or maybe even more, a lot. Mm-hmm. No, it may, no, maybe 40 billion tweets, something. Like emoji prediction, right? And yeah, they masked the emoji and the model has to, to predict emoji. And they discovered that it made a model that was surprisingly super robust for anything of like sentiment classification. It was very, very good at doing all this thing in, in a wide range of domains. Mm-hmm. It was a great model, yeah. But just to be too early, probably uh, mm-hmm. still LSTM. Yeah, what happened is just that our open source activity got some, like a lot of speed quite quickly. And after some time, we were just all on the open source. And so uh, a few years after, in 2019, we decided to pivot to stop with the game and to concentrate on, on open source, <laughs> which we uh, have not regretted at all. I think it's uh, it's very... I bet. <laughs> I bet. You know, I feel like we could have a whole conversation just about kind of the hugging face as a business and the strategy there. And we won't do that. But I'm curious, you know, when you think about where that all goes, like what's the direction that you all have in mind? Oh, yeah. I think, I mean, the nice thing about hugging face is it's very, I would say, transparent company. You can see a lot of it from the outside and it's exactly the same inside. So we have this very clear direction around like more open source, more open science, more like what we call responsible or good AI, which is making an AI, which is not narrowly focused, but take into account all the social impact that you have and try to, to have people around the table that, that knows about these impacts, knows about the ethical question around that. Yeah, that's the direction. I think today there is a, a couple of kind of wearing trends that basically we, we think things that are not so healthy, like this kind of focus on private models, on private company, the big distance between academia and, and like industrial labs. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of trying to fight uh, basically this thing. And we think that's in the end, you know, maybe much more important what you build if we reach idea or not. I don't know. But I think the journey that you follow, if it's a, if we build a healthy community, that's actually much more important in the end. Mm-hmm. If like the research community is something where people can sit around the table, can participate together in, in, in research project, people share knowledge, people like don't hesitate to share tools, to share their results. Mm-hmm. I think that's much more important in the end, maybe than, than even what we build. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think of Hugging Face as, or when I think of Hugging Face, I think of NLP in particular, language models, that kind of thing. But there's also, a, there's tons of different types of models in the hub. How much of the company's focus and energy is specific to NLP, language models, all of that stuff versus other types of things? Yeah, that's a good question. I think until maybe one year, one year and a half ago, that was the whole company was fully, fully on NLP. Mm-hmm. 
And since last year, we, we've kind of been expanding first on the open source side. So we've been doing a lot of speech since about one year ago when Patrick von Platten decided to push for this direction. Mm -hmm. So we have now quite a strong presence there. And more recently, uh, we've been experimenting more with, with computer vision. Again, first on the open source side, and now on the research side, we're also expanding what we do. Also because, well, I think we're also hitting maybe a little bit of a wall in NLP, where maybe uh, just using text alone is, is not enough. Even when you scale, even when you scale to these really, really huge sizes, you still have this little thing that's still missing. And uh, it's probably something that you need to find in other modalities. Maybe you cannot model the full world that you would like to model with only text. At least that's what I believe. And so uh, generally we're expanding. It's also easier because the tools are getting similar and similar. Everybody's using transformers. Right. There is this kind of conversions of tooling that, that make it quite natural. And so beyond the open source, your team on the science side is focused on research? Yeah. So the science team has been growing quite a lot. So mostly last year around this big science project. And now that big science is, is reaching its end, it's starting a couple of, of other projects. And the idea is basically to gather people around impactful projects. So maybe to have a, a research team which is, which is quite ambitious and which can tackle kind of fundamental problems. So it's quite, it's quite exciting. Mm -hmm. I think we're reaching now closer to this idea that we had in the beginning that I've always admired a lot, DeepMind and the way they can gather people around projects. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I was always a bit frustrated that it was quite close to us and not really shared with the rest of the community. And so here the idea is to try to do the same type of research lab, which, which kind of select a handful of projects, but do it in a kind of open source, open science way. Mm -hmm. And so is the big science project, is that turned out to be kind of an umbrella for the kind of full breadth of your research program, or is it a specific project and you have other projects exploring other areas? Yeah, so big science project is, is, is a specific one. So it started uh, pretty much one year ago, a little bit more. And the discussion was around a good relationship we had with a uh, compute cluster, uh, it's always good to have a nice relationship with the neighborhood compute cluster. So <laughs> there is this big uh, public compute cluster in France called Jean Zay, which is quite big. Actually, it has uh, more than 3000 GPU. Mm. And, and they were like asking us, the, they were a bit like under, underused and they were asking us, okay, uh, well, can we do something together? Do you want to use the, the cluster for something? And so uh, at the same time, like people were kind of releasing this series of large language model. Well, I mean, releasing the paper at least. And I was like, okay, that would be nice to make maybe a large language model and that would be public. And so we could do that there. And the more we were thinking about it, the more we thought it's it's a bit annoying to do that just hugging face because we'll just reproduce something that we that we think is, is missing to, today, which is just like, we just do the same that people are doing, which is like having five people in a small like team training but the way we think this should be done is more like what i've seen when i was doing like my phd which was this very large like physics collaboration so mm. the example i take often is the lhc which is this huge uh, hadron collider uh, which is in switzerland that costs like 10 billion dollars mm -hmm. and so obviously 10 billion dollars that's much that's uh, really outside of the reach of any university lab so how people do that in physics, they just get together a bunch of research university, a bunch of research lab, and then they basically ask a big grant. 
of 10 billion. So thankfully, we don't need 10 million to train a, a language model yet, <laughs> maybe in the future, but uh, you, you kind of need 10 million, which is still quite significant. Mm -hmm. And so I thought maybe we could do the same. Maybe we could just gather a lot of research labs together from industry, from academia, and then we ask public cluster to, to give uh, some hours. And it turns out you, you can do that. And that worked, basically. We asked them 5 million GPU hours, and they'd say, yes, there you have them. We actually asked them everything that they were supposed to grant for six months. And so the conclusion was that they extended, the, they made the cluster itself bigger, which is also a nice outcome because then the cluster will be bigger for all future research. Yeah. And so the Big Science project started then one year ago around this big grant of compute time from Joseph, from the Joseph supercomputer. And then we had everything to do to build a large data set. The idea was to gather around the table people from social science, people from like data, people from modeling, people from also maybe other fields that would be interesting using a language model like historical documents, biomedical people who want to maybe use them. Every, everybody who could be interested in using a large language model mm -hmm. should be able to join the table. And so today, there's, I think, a little bit more than 1,000 researchers who have, who have like signed a participation form to Big Science. Mm -hmm. So not everybody is active, obviously, that's like a voluntary basis. But I would guess maybe 200 people are, are daily active on this. And we are now reaching the last stages. So we finished the big data set just, just last week, which is 800 gigabytes. And we are starting the, the training probably next week which will go for four months. So that's quite long to, to train these beasts. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to have 200 researchers working on curating this data set? Yeah, that's, I mean, they don't all work on the data set. The data set, there's also the model to build. But yeah, I think it's very surprisingly great because more and more we see that these models are only as good as their data set are, basically. It's, it's, they are just kind of a reflection of basically the, the data set that you fit in. Mm -hmm. And... Most of the time, a part of this data set are, are like crawl data, for instance. But here, just because there are so many people there, we could have like a kind of crowdsource of the data set. So we ask all the native speakers. So this is a multilingual model that we are training. And we ask all these uh, like native speakers to select good quality source in their own languages. Mm -hmm. And because there are so many people, when you gather all that, that give you like 800 gigabytes, which is enough to train this huge model, actually. So you don't even need to crawl the web, basically, to, to get that just because of the power of, of community, I would say, somehow, mm. for at least a lot of collaboration. What gives you the confidence to say that now before you've actually trained the model? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You, you got me there. <laughs> we still need to train it. But I think the data set in itself is actually also a super interesting artifact. Mm -hmm. And a lot of work was also spent on the legal aspect and the governance aspect of being able to share this data set, mm -hmm. because that's a crucial resource that's missing today. Even if you have access, I don't know, to GPT-3 or some of this model, you never really have access to the data set. And that would be super interesting for a lot of research if you want to know if you're actually doing future, if you want to know if your model is good there because it was like 10 times or 100 times or 1,000 times in a training data set. If you want to do, I don't know, PII research, I mean, for a lot of research, it would be super useful to be able to dig in the training data set and know what the model has really seen. And so being able to have a, like a very large multilingual data set is a super valuable resource already. I think sometimes we focus a lot on models, but data set, they live longer actually than the models. Mm -hmm. But yeah, now we still need to train the model. That's right. Yeah. Have you recognized that you haven't trained the model yet? I'm curious what, how you think about this 
approach to curating these data sets and like how you think it's going to play out in terms of the model. And I, I think the analogy that I'm constructing is with deep learning, we've kind of said, hey, instead of like curating this data set and doing feature engineering and all this kind of more manual handcrafty kind of things, let's just throw a bunch of data at a sufficiently large model and it'll figure out the patterns that it needs to provide value to us. And I think I'm drawing an analogy to, hey, let's just slurp up the entire web and train a model and it's going to result in good things. Now, we, we know some of the downfalls of that. Like the web, lots of corners of the web can be a bad place. And I'm just, I'm curious, like how you think it's all going to come together relative to the way we're creating these models today? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of aspects which you're asking. That's a very good question. I would say first, I think we kind of come back a little bit from just scrapping the web and just filling the models with that. So there's actually a good lesson in, in big sense because to test the, the scaling in the beginning, we trained a 13 billion model just on like a bunch of common crawl data. 13? 13 billion, yes, which is already quite big, I would say. That's probably bigger than a lot of... Is there a 13 billion? Well, there is the 20 billion now from Illustrator since, since two weeks ago, but that's, very, that's quite big. Mm-hmm. And the performances were pretty bad, actually. And when we tried to dive in it, the reason was the, the data. If you just take common call like this, it's not very high quality. And so we compared with other like manually selected data set like the pile or like another set of common call. And all of the pointer were just that it was all about the data that was not higher, highest quality. Mm. And so I think we kind of come back a little bit from that. There was also a bunch of research around like, how when you just deduplicate your data set, you actually improve the, the performances of your model like drastically. Mm-hmm. And if you look at even, you know, like GPT-2, GPT-3, the data was still quite carefully selected from links on Reddit, nothing like that. So that kind of sounds like a bad place on the internet, but that's still quite a good indication of, of good quality. So I think this is now uh, more and more people consider that very important. A similar thing around the training data set of like clip or thing like that. People have been uh, really struggling to to reproduce the the performances, and that's mostly from the quality of the data set. I think OpenAI is really great in, in carefully curating high quality data sets. That's something that they have very well perfected. Meaning this thing that we think of as like we're going to slurp everything and create a model is not actually what's happening. It's a lot more carefully curated than that. That's what I think. Yeah, definitely. But then on the other hand, there is also the question of how you evaluate the model. Mm-hmm. And if you want, like, for instance, to evaluate your model mostly on benchmarks that are made from Wikipedia data, you probably want to, to tailor your model around this distribution. And so in big science, we made the choice of trying to have a data set that is representative of what people are actually reading on the internet. So there's diversity of source, but some of these sources they are nowhere in our evaluation benchmark of ML people, right? So these are like modes of the data set that the model is learning for nothing in terms of evaluation. Mm -hmm. But we think this is actually more important that the data set somehow is representative of like what a human is is accessing, maybe more than the, the benchmark of today. But that might mean that it might underperform on some benchmark because it's not really tailored around around these benchmarks. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about the evaluation part of the process of the training process and kind of how you do that at scale? You know, we're talking about language models. Yeah, so on big science, actually, that's one of the parts I did not follow much. There's so, so many parts. So I follow mostly data set and model. And the evaluation was also a little bit more than 40 working group in big science. Okay. 
most of them are about like at least 40, 60 persons. So there's a lot of activity. Wow. A lot of them are actually submitting papers and there is a lot of side research mm-hmm. on evaluation. They have been also doing a lot of research on evaluation itself. So yeah, I think on this, the best would be to read the paper that they have been just submitting. I think last month there was a couple of papers submitted and they're also writing some today on bias. I was saying that, but yeah, I won't be able to, to give very good feedback. Okay. Maybe I can just say that we've been using the Eluter AI harness mostly for our uh, tests, which is, I think, a great, a great framework. So just a quick shout out to them. Good work on this. Nice. Speaking of Eluter, they're another kind of distributed group that's trying to create open source language models. How do you differentiate what you're doing with big science, besides from the community dynamic that you're trying to create and the, the process, is the expected result going to be something that you think of as comparable or are there more fundamental differences in the way that you're thinking about the, the problem? So, I mean, there is a lot of interaction. I think many people from Elisir are very active. If we look at the papers that have already been out from Big Science, you will see there are Eluter, Eluter papers, Stella is very active. There is also a lot of them, Leo and uh, so there is really like a big overlap and we try to share like knowledge. I think the main the main difference, so, so one will be that we were from the beginning targeting a, a multilingual model. And I think that was important for us because mm-hmm. one aspect that I find a bit frustrating is that there is this uh, super strong dominance of English in this field right now in the large language model field in particular, maybe Chinese as well, if you want. And the other aspect is... Um, Really, that we wanted, we tried to make a project, a workshop where uh, we could have a lot of academic people. So, mm-hmm. from the beginning, we were thinking, okay, how can you build a collaboration where academics can participate along with industrial? How can you align all these incentives? So, you have together team from Deep Speed people, they are very involved, they are doing really great work. NVIDIA people, uh, so Google people. So, for instance, the evaluation part is, is a lot driven by some Google people, Facebook people as well. That's probably actually the first project where Google, Facebook, NVIDIA, uh, Microsoft are all training a single model together. I don't think this has existed uh, in the past either. We were thinking a lot, okay, how can you align the incentive of all these people so that they can participate together? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, that was a difference in, in kind of the meta direction, meta approach or goal that we wanted or that at least I, I found important. Mm-hmm. But overall, I think it's nice if we have a couple of open source models. I would find this a bit annoying if we have just one and then people will start overfitting on this artifact and thinking that, I don't know, some weird thing they have seen is a general rule while it might just be a random coincidence you know mm-hmm. nice and so big science has been a, a big focus for you but in terms of other activities of the science team and research group you mentioned multimodality as an area that you're interested in can you talk a little bit about what you're doing there yeah i think that's kind of a natural extension somehow right when you see that even when you scale this text model there's still a little bit of things missing mm-hmm. You want to extend to other modalities. So one of the projects we would like to tackle now is, is like a bit the same multimodality. And here the same I, I've seen that there's a lot of models coming out in the recent month from a lot of companies. In most of them, we see the same problem, like the data set are private, the models tend to be private. So I think here again, <laughs> there is kind of a need to, <laughs> to come and to say, hey, maybe we can share things more. Maybe we can build on, on the shoulders of each other. Yeah. 
But more generally, I think this kind of scaling that we've seen in NLP should be applied and interesting in other domain as well. I think uh, this kind of zero-shot performance, we would like to see them also in, in vision. We'd like to see them also in speech. Mm-hmm. And so that's the area we, we want to explore in the coming month or maybe coming year, depending. And kind of related to this is the extension. When you have multimodality at some point, you would like even to interact. And so embodied environments is, is the natural extension. Mm-hmm. And here also, I think this is a very exciting area. And maybe today is a good day to start tackling this. Today, because we're all talking about metaverse and things like that? or <laughs> Yeah, no, not really. <laughs> I mean, I, I like the idea of the metaverse. I'm a bit afraid it might be kind of Facebook only, then, then it makes this a bit less collaborative community endeavor. Uh-huh. But I think the general idea of using virtual environments or things like that are interesting. Also, because I'm always very frustrated how this, this model learn language so differently than us human, right? We learn language in, in action. We learn language in, in situation with like all this kind of multimodal and even even interaction. And I think at some point, if we could bring the way we train this model a bit closer to, to the way human learn language, we might also be able to solve this kind of inconsistency that we get when we don't really understand why the model is failing here. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's probably a direction. But more generally, I think also just simulation and synthetic data are interesting on, on many aspects. So for instance, when you think about bias and, and like PII and on all things, if you could build your data set you, yourself and control it, and at the same time having a, a diversity which is wide enough to learn the concept that you want reliably, it would make a lot of like ethical and social aspects easier, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I wanted to dig a little bit deeper into kind of constructing these data sets such that they are sufficiently diverse to capture what you're trying to do, but also unbiased. And yeah, I'm just wanting to learn from your experiences there if it's something that you're actively working on. Are there techniques, tools, things that can help someone do that? So as often, I'm naturally, I'm more like a builder of tools, you know, I mean, even big science, is, it's just kind of a very big tool for the community, in my opinion, that's just a, <laughs> and the same for virtual environment. I think today it's very difficult if you're like an NLP researcher and you're like, hey, I would like to do some grounding. Mm-hmm. It's really scary. You need to like use totally different tools than the one you, you use to. So for instance, you need to switch to, I don't know, Unity, learn C Sharp or even C++ if you want to ground Unreal. So there is like this huge tooling gap i would say mm-hmm. and tools are important when you saw you know like part pytorch or tensorflow things like that they really enabled yeah. research in, in themselves changed a lot if we didn't have them we would be like still really light years in the back yeah so i think right now there's this main problem here like if you want to create synthetic data or virtual environments it's very difficult to do it in a flexible enough way so that's the first step mm-hmm. that we are doing right now trying to make a, a tool around this and do you see that as primarily easier interfaces for researchers and ML people to interact with or simpler environments kind of ground up? Something, some kind of way to make with Unity's level of richness easier to use so that they don't have to do CC++? Or is it coming up with a simpler model that still exercises the idea of grounding and embodiment. Mm. 
Yeah, I don't have the answer yet because the problem is still uh, we have this first uh, first version, but they're, they're very early. But I guess in a few months, you will see the answer, hopefully, if everything works well. But I think it's a mix of both. Ideally, you would like to be able at the same time to, or in kind of a similar setup, to try your model on simple grounding. You want like to try on simple, I don't know, 2D world or even text world. And then if you want to scale to like Unity, you would like to be able to do that quite simply. Mm-hmm. And at some point, reach maybe even photorealism and transfer. But along the way, there's a lot of also research problem that are still open. So the question also that you were hitting at, which is, uh, do we have today like synthetic environments where, for instance, you can train a computer vision that can match ImageNet performance of a ResNet trained on ImageNet? I don't think today it really exists. So mm-hmm. this is more, in my opinion, some things we still don't know exactly about how to measure data set diversity and how to know exactly what is the day the diversity we, we need to to have mm-hmm. maybe more fundamentally when you think about kind of embodied learning are you thinking about it from a, a language and nlp perspective primarily and what does embodiment mean in that context like when we're talking about reinforcement learning and control problems and robotics like that grounding connection is clear when we're talking about like grounding text and images and things like that that's clear what changes about nlp or language model or something like that in a agent type of environment that fundamentally creates grounding yeah, that's a good question. Well, I mean, there's a lot of view to see that, and I don't think anybody has a real answer. But in my opinion, a lot of things we're missing is kind of this interactive thing around mm-hmm. in the world. So it's both being in the world, but also being interactive with, with another agent or, or human, like you can have either human loop or another agent. Mm-hmm. It's like this usage-based kind of way of learning language, which is really at least how we human learn language. Yeah which I think is one of the reasons you see kind of this weird effect with this language model that they have a little bit of problem with theory of mind, like discoupling their own universe with the universe of somebody else because they never had kind of this uh, interactive learning that you could have. So some people are training more in text, right? You could learn also in a dialogue, just pure text. Mm-hmm. But in the end, you know that when you're talking about an apple, there is like also an object, which is the apple. So if you can ground that also in this object, that would be even better. Mm -hmm. It sounds like a big part of the idea around embodiment is it's about like multi-party interactions and creating data sets that are kind of natively dialogue based as opposed to embodiment somehow necessarily grounds like single party embodiment like grounds language or something like that i don't know if that makes sense (laughs) i think as well yeah it's a lot about grounding in in interaction and then the big question is how can you make that efficient right we know that rl is like really not data efficient we know that right so there is all these interesting questions that are connected around me which is around this which is the development of now some form of offline learning in RL that starts to, to work maybe a little bit. All this idea around maybe being able to do the transfer learning. I also think we often associate like virtual or simulation environments with RL, but they, they can also very much be used with supervised learning or unsupervised learning like we do here. We, you don't have to have like a, just a scalarly world. You can have a lot more information. I think we start to break. That, that's, I think, what is super interesting maybe 
the end of last year, beginning of this year, we see a lot of bridges that are breaking between NLP and vision, between maybe RL and NLP and vision. And that's super interesting. I've not seen that. Yeah, I've never really seen that in the AI or ML field that all these people are switching so easily. You see NLP people starting to the computer vision. You see RL people doing embodied learning with like uh, interaction and, and NLP. And you mentioned the convergence of tooling, in particular transformers, as being a big driver of that. Yeah, and the simplicity of the transformers paradoxically make us more interested in data and environments and complexity and diversity, which is really in the end which what's matter. Mm-hmm. So we also stopping a little bit with all the architectural complexity we were adding on top of our LSTM and going back to a very simple architecture. And so we can focus now to maybe things that are more important, which is how, what is our training procedure and, and what is actually our inputs and all these questions. Are there things that you've come across that you find to be like the harder parts of really understanding transformers or things that like folks don't? sufficiently understand you know in your view or things that surprise people when they learn i think transformers are actually much more simpler to explain than all the lstm or rna that we had before (laughs) i think well i mean just like everybody i guess the first time i was reading transform paper i was like oh this is super super complex but now if you start playing if you code one yourself you're like oh this is actually a very simple architecture in the end and it's getting simpler and simpler yeah But I I think what most people are are still kind of missing, but we also see the shift today is this shift to to what I was saying, data, right? But Andrew Eng and people like that are also pushing and saying, hey, data-centric. Data-centric AI. I really think it's something we need today to pay more attention to this part of the pipeline and to this part. And here we're still lacking tools also, according to me. We're lacking data measurements tool. We're lacking... Often when people put out the data, they mostly say, hey, it's like x billion tokens mm-hmm. and here is a rough idea how i gathered it and that's it mm-hmm. but if anybody was like uh, publishing a model and just saying hey it's like x billion parameters and here is a rough idea of, <laughs> of how it was trained but I, I didn't evaluate anything i didn't do any measurements and that would seem really strange but that's kind of what we do today with data set we don't measure them we don't really analyze them so that i think here there is a lot of room to to build interesting tools and interesting uh, insights there have been some efforts in that direction, like the data cards for data sets and things like that. Sounds like you're talking about more concrete tools that you download and point at your data set and they tell you something. Is- yeah. So Meg Mitchell, for instance, uh, th- there was this effort last year, Meg Mitchell, Sasha, Sasha Uccioni, uh, Yassin, uh, Angie at, at Hugging Face on building a data, a data measurement tool that kind of tried to give you insight. That's really the beginning. I think this could be, could be developed a lot more. Yeah, I, I agree very much here with you, yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about that tool and kind of what it did and where its edges were? Yeah, so it's a tool where you can input your data sets and it gives you a lot of different metrics or like evaluation of, of your data. You can also use that to compare two data sets together. So you have some aggregated metrics like the Ziplo, this is like the most frequent words, and this kind of helps you to know is your data set kind of following, I don't know, standard English or is your data set kind of strangely biased? You have tools to see some correlation between words and you can see some, for instance, biased information is male always correlated with doctor or this kind of thing or, or like more complex. Mm-hmm. You have also very simple thing that actually people don't do much, which is just looking at the duplicated 
example. And when you take many common data sets, I don't know, like squad or thing like that, you see that there are many duplicates actually and just this simple thing be a requisite to investigate why do we have duplicates or strange entries. You have tools around perplexity. That is a, a way to, to tell a little bit maybe where what domain is your data set, which kind of domain is it's more on. But then it's just the beginning and the idea is to add more metrics and to also contextualize this because it's a bit new. So when you see, I don't know, that on this kind of data set metrics have this score, what you would like to understand, is this good or not? Is my data set actually wrongly selected or does it have some some problems that I don't understand or not? So I think there's a lot of work around also contextualize this and basically generally education, understanding how you can understand your data. Got it. Got it. So I'll, I'll get those links from you and we'll make sure to include them in the show notes page. I also wanted to ask about what you're working on in the retrieval space from a, a research perspective. How are you thinking about those problems? Yeah, so this is also super interesting. That's also a major frustration with today's model, right? So so when you take, I don't know, so, so for instance, we've been talking about GPT-3, it still doesn't know really about COVID and you're like, well, it should be really nice to be able to update this model because that's a huge part of our life. Yeah. And the same with BERT, which still think that uh, Trump is president. This model are like the static thing and we would like to make them able to evolve. And retrieval is one way. I think uh, today it's maybe one of the most interesting, but there are other ways. So yeah, this is one way to, to both being able to make your model learn some, some things and also to have some maybe better understanding on how your model produces its output. At least you, you can have a little bit more information by, by knowing what it was uh, querying in the database. I also think uh, today we, we do a lot of retrieval in NLP, but maybe it could also be just like when we, just like what we've been saying, it could also be maybe interesting in vision or like other, other fields as a general way to, to retrieve some kind of uh, static memory or at least something that the model can use as an anchor point. So we have a couple of people, uh, Niels Reimers is, is mostly leading here. And then there is a couple of interns mostly at the moment working on, on different topics there. Mm-hmm. And is your model from a research perspective kind of the, along the same lines or along the traditional publish lines or how do your goals differ based on where you are? It sounds like a big part of it is producing open source data sets. I imagine producing open source models and other things as well as a big effort. Yeah. Is that in addition to publishing papers? Is it, does it swing a little bit more towards open source than papers? Do you think that's the right way to do it? How do you think about the whole space? That's something I spend a lot of time thinking. I think the, the focus on papers is good on some aspect with like, there's some serious thing when you write a paper, you like go back to the literature, you cite relevant work. But there is also a bit of overfitting, right? When you just write a paper to just write a paper for this deadline and you need to, to have a paper. So yeah. at Hugging Face, because we think that tools are as important as research, basically, and that they can go together, we focus more on like a general notion of an artifact. So maybe at the end of your research, what you have produced is a, is a model. Maybe it's a data set. Maybe it's a mm-hmm. paper or maybe it's a code tool. Or maybe it's even just, yeah, it could be some reflection uh, or like something around, I don't know, the ethics or the social impact or, or something that could be in a blog post and that could have a huge impact. But I don't think you need to have a paper to have huge impact. I think these are more like side product of what, you, what you're doing, actually. You're doing something and at some point you're like, okay, let's write a report and, oh, we have this deadline, we can submit it there in this conference. So we focus more on what you produce in like kind of an impactful artifact out of what you do as a research more than 
producing papers. Let you also, I think, think a bit longer if you want to make a one-year project. It's a bit strange to to think in terms of a one-year paper. That's a bit uh, depressing, maybe even. (laughs) (laughs) When you think about how far the companies come from chatbots, this is kind of at the same time that NLP broadly has evolved tremendously and is now greatly impacting other areas of machine learning. Like, where do you see it all going? You know, when you think about natural language understanding, generation, all of that stuff. I don't know. I really feel like we are at the beginning again of like something. (laughs) (laughs) We're thinking about that this year. Yeah, I think there's so many open doors. So obviously we we had to make, I remember we had to make a choice. And when, so Victor, Victor San is one of our lead scientists. Mm -hmm. When he joined, he was like really strong in computer vision. And I told him, yeah, let's try NLP. This is this kind of under understudied field, but that's also nice. And now I'm trying to do the opposite. I'm like, now you, you're really into NLP, but let's extend. Let's come back to computer vision. <laughs> it's also nice. But I think uh, computer vision, there's a lot of things you can do. And the most interesting, I think just like NLP are just about reinventing the field and thinking, hey, we're training on these fixed 2D images, but is it actually what we would like to do as a vision object? detection or like kind of thing do we don't want to more like try to understand the 3d world for instance outside or even 4d with like things that are moving and so what is very interesting i think today is stopping uh, and say hey maybe we need to reinvent this field and stop maximizing my metrics on this benchmark but i should maybe reinvent the benchmark itself and is it really Mm-hmm. So the, the same is happening in NLP, I think, with like this blurriness between these tasks that were historically very separated. You had like test classification or question answering of these things that were very separated. And with this large language model, you have one model that kind of tackle all these things and that kind of question your the boundaries between even this task. Is, is Does it really have a sense outside of the data set that you're using? Is your task actually something that's really well defined? Mm-hmm. It's less and less clear, but that's even more interesting because then you ask maybe more fundamental question around why you why you do NLP in the beginning, right? Right. Yeah, maybe to, to close out, I want to give you an opportunity to talk about your book, the book you co-authored, Natural Language Processing with Transformers. I think it just hit virtual bookshelves a couple of days ago. Yeah, that's right. This. Yeah, that, right? that was a process long in the making. Uh-huh. So it's really a lot of the work is uh, Lewis and Leandro and Leandro's work. They've been really the one like starting the idea for a long time. I was, people were asking me, like, I mean, publisher was saying, hey, you should write a book. And I was like, no, it's too much time investment. <laughs> it's, it's really, uh, and Lewis and Leandro came and say, hey, we've already wrote the chapter. Can you read it? What do you think? Uh, do you want to join us as an author? And I, and I read the chapter. And I was like, yeah, that's actually like really, really interesting. I like the way you write. Mm-hmm. And so we started that now one year and a half ago, like spreading the chapters between each other. And that, that was very long. We wanted to make this in, in the way that we've loved to read recent book, which is book with like also code notebooks where you feel like you're actually learning mm-hmm. at the same time, kind of a fundamental question. Like for instance, what is good evaluation? How do you work with like a few, a few, a few data, a few labels or even zero shots, like this fundamental question, but also at the same time that you feel like you implemented something. So every time we like take a data set and kind of work together, like tackling all the problems. And even at the last part is like training a very large language model. And we also like build data set together from GitHub and make a code, a kind of a copilot or like a code parrot, we call it. Oh, nice. Together on how you scale this. So they, 
it ranges from like very small language models like Distilbird, very efficient, how you quantize them to like very huge 1 billion parameter model that, that's trained on, on code. So I'm very happy about the results and I'm super excited. I, I, I'm the only one who didn't receive the physical copy yet. So I'm still kind of <laughs> waiting to, to get it in my hand and feel that it's real. I tried to order one and unlike, I don't think I've ever seen this before, but it was like a, a prime book. And they said the delivery time was long. Like, you know, you'll get it between February 24th and March 5th. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's possible. Yeah. Hopefully that's because like it's in hot demand and they can't get enough copies. I hope as well. Yeah. <laughs> we don't know yet, obviously, because we have no, we don't have the, the first numbers. But I mean, anyway, I'm, I'm very proud of this book. I think uh, this was a very, uh, a very great collaboration. And actually, after the, during the collaboration, Lewis and Leon Dole joined Hugging Face as, as a consequence. Nice. <laughs> and Lewis has been now working on the, on the, course because we also have a course at hugging face which is kind of a mm -hmm. well it's it was not written at the same time as the book but the the idea is, uh, is a bit the same but really more code oriented so it's really how to use the, all the ecosystem all the data set transformer mm -hmm. i've heard really good things about the course and the way it's organized yeah i think it's great and then the last part is also being finished now which is a bit more extended but all the the eight chapters that, that are out now give you a very good grounding if you want to start like using all these tools Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Did I read correctly that the book was written using the kind of fast AI tool chain that Jeremy and Sylvain use for their book? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, Sylvain is also working at Huggy Face. So definitely, yeah, this is a, uh, all these people know each other and we are very uh, great admirers of Jeremy has done. So yeah, we use this, this same thing, the NVDev and uh, the notebook environments. And it's nice because now we can have all these notebooks, all these collab that are directly, directly outside to, to play with. Mm -hmm. And one more question on the book. The, you know, O'Reilly is known for these animal covers on their books. And this one is a parrot. Is that a nod to the Stochastic Parrots paper and Meg, you know, that Meg's a co-author on? Yeah, no, that, that was the best surprise of the book, right? Because you can't <laughs> choose the animal. You have no choice. Oh, really? Yeah. And when they said, yeah, here is your animal, I was like, oh, that's, that's really great. <laughs> and that's the reason we decided to name the, so this big uh, code model that I was talking about, the 1 billion that we trained together in the book in the last chapter, we decided to name it Code Parrots mm. because that's what these models are in the end, you know, that's uh, at least today. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, Thomas, thanks so much for joining us and sharing a bit about what you're up to and thinking about and working on. Thanks. It was a pleasure. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.